Hey up and welcome to the Temple of Blair. This is another conversation with Mark Abramson, uh, the man who leads very little introduction in terms of the Roadrunner canon. And as such, I'll just refer you guys to the old episode on that one for the introduction. This is very much picking up where we left off. Bit of housekeeping on my part. It turns out I completely fucked up the RSS feed on the Apple Podcasts platform feed, whatever you want to call it, of this podcast. So those who rely on Apple Podcasts to listen to this might just notice I dumped 22 episodes or so on uh, that feed all in one day. So apologies for that. You must have thought I was dead or something. Anyway, one, two, fuck shit up. I kind of like tried to cut it off around about the, the turn of the century last week. Um, and then the beautiful thing about doing these in two parts and speaking to other people um, during is you th- start thinking of other things and you start connecting dots where you necessarily either there are any dots to connect or where you just didn't think of them before. So when I reflect more on the chronology of events, which lead up to the Warner takeover, the first domino is conventionally, the Edel stuff and then Universal buying their 50% or however much it was. But I think the first thing that happens, it's got to be urban discipline, hasn't it? Because that's where Leo Cohen falls in love with the brand. And that's where he, he you know, that's where he starts his affair with it. It, it, it. You know, it's amazing because it really, there is a, a long history with Lior. Um, and, you know, certainly, Look, there's uh, and I knew we would talk about him, and obviously, it's it's he's fascinating. Uh, you know, I remember I first met him. It was you know with Rush Management um, and with uh, Biohazard and stuff. Um, it, it was um, what's his name who managed uh, Fear Factory, uh, who also managed Biohazard. Uh, anyway, Scott so Koenig? Scott Koenig, yeah, yeah Scott yeah. Koenig, who who was like the kind of the, the guy who stood out at Rush Management because Rush Management was all you know such l- legacy, legendary hip hop, mm. um, and you know, but Biohazard obviously was always a band that kind of grayed those lines between hardcore and metal and hip-hop mm. uh so that makes a lot of sense now leor as a guy who is certainly look i mean what's the the saying you know it's like the the worst thing uh is about a person is to be ignored you know is you you'd rather be loved or hated than being yeah, the, ignored the worst um, thing about being talked about is not being talked about or what's worse right. than being yeah so leor has certainly you know has his uh lovers and and detractors I'm a fan. You know, I always have been from day one. He He's awesome. And there's, you know, it never surprised me that mm. the the energies synced up, uh, you know, and it, and it took a minute, obviously. But yeah, uh, Biohazard certainly, that was, it was Biohazard Urban Discipline, which was really the first, one of the first forays, you know, it's like there was uh, the, the first few releases that got us, in that major label world, mm. you know, I mean, you're talking about Sepultura and Biohazard, um, and Urban Discipline. Really, I mean, look, the expectations were obviously much bigger, and certainly they, I mean, they wound up going over to to Warner Brothers. Um, I mean, that record is an amazing, amazing record, and and it 
it did. It's like it, it started wheels in motion, mm. you know, with Lior that obviously years later would become something so much bigger. Yeah. It's so let's just take a step back and talk about the deal itself. So the idea was Warner had Biohazard, but given that they were effectively an outlier on their own roster. So that someone came up with the idea, and I don't know who, to say, well, we need let's put their album out on something with more metal credibility. And then we'll scoop it up afterwards after that one comes out. And then we'll be lauded as having, you know, recognized that potential at a street level. Um, and it makes more sense, I guess. And from what I understand, Case hated that idea because you'd be pouring resources into a band that wasn't yours. I'm not sure how true that is. Well, look, Case always... Case was always trying to create his own thing. He, mm -hmm. he definitely never wanted to... He didn't, he, he didn't want to, right, he didn't want to, you know, nurture something for someone else. Mm. His vision was always, we can be that big. We can, we can do this. You know, we can break these bands and we can be a player on the same level. You know, he had big ambitions and yeah. obviously they're, you know, they paid off. Um, but yes, getting, you know, there, there's certainly, he's a, he's a wise businessman to cut wise deals and to get the major label backing, uh, the, the juice behind us, you know, and it took a, a, a few different steps before we really got to that point. And, you know, and I don't know the inner workings of where his head is at as far as, you know, when he started uh, doing partnership deals, you know, I don't know how mm. that hit him on the inside. Um, but it certainly helped the label because, you know, and, and there was no issues. It wasn't like we looked at this thing. It was like Biohazard was certainly not a band that uh, was any kind of sellout or anything like that. It wasn't like, you know, like, it, you know, at the time when the brand truly was pure, uh, you want to talk about these legacy years of Roadrunner. I mean, it's like you're talking about Biohazard, you know, it's like mm -hmm. it's so you're it wasn't like all of a sudden they had stepped into like, okay, like what happens later when you start playing around with mainstream rock stuff, whether it be like a Nickelback or whatever, mm -hmm. biohazard is to that, you know? So, so it was, there was a certain amount of sense of victory of like, ha ha ha, we're taking our heavy sh shit and we're, you know, we're getting the big machine to help us, you know, uh, jump into that world and infect the mainstream world with with our you know ballsy stuff, um, and certainly, I mean, Biohazard were the goods, man. I mean, it was like they were they were amazing. And that record still stands up to this day. You know? Yeah, and timing as well. You mentioned um, in terms of the legacy, timing was this was is it ninety four? It is ninety four, isn't it? Sounds about right. I could look that up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I still got my, my thing here. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. No, it would have been before that because No Holds Barred came out in 90. Uh, oh, no, 92 was Urban Discipline. Ah, okay. But either way, we're, we're, we're immediately to the left of 93, which is obviously the big sort of like, that's the window where Roadrunner goes, okay, we're now planting our tent peg and hammering it in. 
Well, it's because as you could see, you know, when you when you do when you look at this stuff, you know, as I said before, and I was and I, I did want to kind of take a look and, and you know confirm my memory. It, it's first off, you could see that ninety two was when Case really wanted to try and uh, that was the, our first steps into we're going to widen ourselves and and step in there because you know with ninety two you had. In, in addition to the the landmark metal records of Deicide, Exhorter, Fear Factory, um, uh, stuff like that, that was the year we had Urban Discipline and we had the Grunt Truck record inside yours. So it was like, so now you're talking about cutting a deal for with Warner for that, and then mm -hmm. the attempt to try and get our own grunge success. Um, you could see that's where it was like, okay, now's where we try and you know, step into the big leagues. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I mentioned, uh, I, I think I always talk about this like expansion in, in that time where we're trying to move away from death metal, but mm -hmm. it might've even been you um, or, or someone reminding me that no, Amurgo was the imprint for that. Yeah. All the way from the start, like even the day that Holly Lane created, like I, I end out the distribution with IRD. It was always RC road racer Amurgo. That was the whole, always the entire idea. So it, I just need to get the idea on my head that it was like a, it was a strategic um, change of direction. No, it was always that trajectory. Because remember, it's not like, okay, when you look at Brian Slagle, you know, uh, the God that he is, <laughs> and we all look at me, we all love it and, and worship Brian because we should. Um, Brian's a metal guy. You know, Brian's passion came out of, um, you know, us metal kids or whatever. Obviously, he, you know, predates, you know, I mean, he he helped, you know, make my path. But it was like, but he was sitting in his bedroom and he was excited and he, he took action. Uh, mm. That's not Case, you know. Case is not a, a metal kid sitting in his bedroom cranking the early new wave of British heavy metal. You know, it's like, that's not him. Mm. Um, he was always looking to create a successful business. Now, Roadrunner's legacy comes from an incredible amount of success in a direction and all the pieces lining up, all the right team players. That, I mean, Case's brilliance was obviously in um, getting the right pieces of the puzzle and mm -hmm. supporting them. Um, yeah following that had the pieces gone down, I mean, it's like, you could sit there and argue the what ifs of life, you know, it's like, but ha yeah. and you look, the, the had Emergo been the thing that took off, we probably wouldn't be, you and I probably wouldn't be sitting here doing this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I wouldn't have chased Roadrunner, not because they were a bad label, but because that wasn't what I was interested in. Yeah. Uh, you know, who knows? So, uh, right. So, so there was always that thing of him trying to have success in a few different directions. Um, and like I said, mm -hmm. it's 92, 93. It's like you, I mean, you can see it's like, um, there was all, and there were some stumbles in there too. I mean, that was also the year he did the star star thing. Um, which, you know, I, uh, why is it such a blight on on why is it such a stain <laughs> on the legacy you see 
I think I've even seen interviews with Monty. I was like, yeah, it didn't quite work out how we expected. Was it? Was it meant to be geared up to be this huge thing, and it just completely shat it the bed or what? And it wasn't. Look, I mean, I'm not the expert. All I know is it wasn't good. Um, yeah. That's the thing. So it was such a left turn from what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was that whole glam thing, and they tried to convince us of the edginess to it, but it was that wasn't there. And, mm. and so, look, had it taken off, great. Yeah, um, it was so much easier to swallow. Hey, we're going to try and have success with a grunge rock band like Grunge Rock. Yeah, um, that's so much easier to swallow because there's still a darkness to it, and. Um, Mm. Tommy accused was a big thing for me. <laughs> um, but yeah. I mean, it, 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 that's so much easier to swallow than star star, which, it, yeah. So we all kind of, yeah, that it stuck out like a sore thumb. Yeah. So, yeah. Fair enough. I enough. I did ask Kathy, um, why didn't, especially in that time, sort of the 87, 88 period, why weren't we after glam? Because that was like at the height and she said, they can't compete with the money. The majors were already in bed with it at that point. There was just no way you could get it. I was like, shit, never thought of it like that. I fucking, but, I've, I've had a right revelatory last few weeks, by the way. It's been wonderful. <laughs> but but that's, that's the thing. It's like you can be – look, the industry – is is famous for this is something succeeds and then everyone else tries to get their version of it yeah uh, and look that's the music industry you know that's not any one label that's all labels you know mm-hmm. you could see it time and time again and we look when you talk about grunge you could see that all of a sudden you get you know those first few bands start breaking big and then everyone wants their grunge because grunge is the big thing welcome mm-hmm. to biz um so it is harder to be the guy who, you know, and that's, and this is why, again, when you are looking to do uh, a historical record of a label is because the brand, they, they stepped out and they were the one it's like, okay, if you wanted to do the grunge thing, you would go talk to the sub pop guys. Um, You want to talk about metal, you know, there really, there are only, there are so few labels that really led the way and spearheaded it. And then, cause now you're talking about Roadrunner, you're talking about Metal Blade. Um, and yes, I know there are other labels, but I mean, so Roadrunner, Metal Blade and Earache really were like the three that, you know, carved the path. Now that is not a diss on noise or century media or, um, SPA. You know, all those are the labels, right. It's, they all, everyone, had their success but now you start talking about who had the level of success um you know it's like it's roadrunner really was the one that had the most mainstream success of that extreme shit um it's like it's i mean that comes obviously sepultura exploded uh and that allowed us to be able to keep moving forward with things like your deicides, your obituaries. And it was like, and Monty was, was great at, at finding this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's like, you look at all that, it's like success breeds success. I'm sure I said that last time too, but it's like, it's like, you can look at the, this is all is a direct 
growth process that leads us to Slipknot. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, it's like, so it, it's, but I don't know that one happens without the other, you know, it's like, you can't argue because now it's just the theoretical, um, you know, I mean, I sat there and talked to Joey Jordison for ages about, you know, how pivotal um, the Roadrunner stuff that we all grew up on mm. was to him. Mm. Stuff like that. I mean, Corey is, again, he's a musical encyclopedia. <laughs> uh, but again, some of those early, it's like, yeah, you look at all this stuff and it, it comes from from that. So it is harder to be the guy who paves the path. It is because there's no precedent. If we have like, if we put the zeitgeist into this box here, Roadrunner is there because the thing that makes them successful in the mainstream is because they're a taste setter. Mm-hmm. And that's the special thing about that triad of Borovoid, Don and Monty, which was they had a really effective workflow when trying to find bands. You couldn't form a band without them knowing about it. And therefore they had the muscle memory to go, this is X plus something new. And therefore, we should try and push it and see if it has any viability, which is something which I imagine into the digital age is something that's harder and harder to do as we become more and more saturated. Um, By the way, this is a perfect moment because Monty was actually very upset that I was far too nice to him uh, in the first one. Uh, really? You have to understand our relationship. And, and this is a perfect opportunity, by the way, as we're talking about the trendsetters and the the path paving and those three. It is actually very, very important, by the way, as a side note, to point out that two of the three of those mocked me mercilessly and refused to back what turned out to be one of the biggest death metal bands of all time when I brought in for us Cannibal Corpse, um, my friends from Buffalo. So they st- Monty has finally, decades later, accepted the fact that they are as good as I said they were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, did he hear Violence Unimagined and then change his tune? It only took him 30 fucking years. It, it's actually, it was, a, it was a, a few albums ago. It was, he, he has finally accepted the fact that, you know, so, but, but I, he, he ridiculed me to no end. Uh, as they were cheese and no good. Uh, <laughs> cheese and no good. Victory. Anyway, so, anyway, but, so, Monty, take that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I'm at, just, to, just to sort of match that yeah. on my side, he'll be the first one that says, like, his, his batting average was, was good and it was high. But yeah. good and high doesn't necessarily mean above 30%, 40%. That, he's still in that region. He's probably oh, about but- 50%. Every every A and R guy, Monty will tell you, could tell you this as well. You know, I think every A and R guy has, or you know, certainly uh, probably a lot of them have their list of ones that got away. You know, um, yep. and because you know, once once you're going after a band, you know, then there's also is or first off, you don't you don't always know. You have to look. There's a reason I never wanted to be an A and R. You have to not only see what they are, you have to see what they're going to be. Um, yeah. And, and so you, you have to uh, be able to have that kind of vision, and then you have to be able to sell it to the band uh, and convince them that you're the one. Because, you know, if they're good, you're not going to be the only one. I mean, a lot of times you get lucky. If you, if you can jump in before anyone else cares, mm. then, then you're not in a bidding war. Um, I believe there was a there was a point where Monty was in talks with Pantera. You know, I mean, it's like you could sit there, but I think he he was after them and just didn't get them. 
Um, yeah. It's an interesting story as in how close to the wire it became. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, so his look, obviously and love Monty to death and, and, you know, uh, uh, there, there's a few things he was shocked that I didn't rip him on, uh, life of agony. Um, <laughs> but, uh, his track record is obviously phenomenal and, you yeah, know, I mean, I, no for balance. Question. At the end of the Roadrun Alive DVD, there's a bit where everyone says "fuck Monty Connor" to the to the Roots Bloody Roots riff. So just go straight to that, and that all that's balanced. Yeah, we're not being too nice to him now. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about Grunchruck because, yes, for me being academically minded, that sounds like I'm blowing smoke up my own ass. But you'll find out why I said that. I'm interested in. The potential there, the delivery of it, and then the lawsuit. That's that's the academic bit. I'm really interested in the in the bankruptcy side. It's a question for Ray, it's a question for Marcus. But it is so intriguing how this is where Rodan is impactful in the very in a, in a legal sense, because they, they had to set a new precedent in bankruptcy law to resolve the Grunchruck problem. <laughs> and I'm not I actually am not that knowledgeable of all that. You know, I mean again, it is at that point. I there was so much of my knowledge came from what I absorbed in. In other words, yeah. I was I was the metal radio guy that was then uh, evolving into a commercial radio guy. Mm. Um, I was not privy to a lot of the uh, legal stuff. Oh and sure, there's stuff in the start then. So you must have right. had to upskill into the grunge world to be able to go. Okay, this is now. This is a point of innovation for the label. And were you asked to get behind it? And did you say yes? Uh, you know, okay. So my evolution into commercial radio was, and I don't remember if we had talked about this at all last time, but it was interesting. Um, again, I was this idealistic little metal shit, you know, whose dream was pure. I was a purist, no question about it. Um <laughs> I, at the time, uh, I was like, I'll, if I could spend the rest of my life waving the banner for metal, I will be the happiest guy in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's so much of that metal idiocy that you see in the world of the, you know, uh, sellout stuff and, and, you know, all that stupidity that is just, that hinders the, the genre. Um, but so there was a point where Case and Doug took me out to lunch one day mm-hmm. and uh, explained to me how we needed to, as a label, we needed to step into this commercial radio world and uh, you know, that they were looking to me to, to do that. I did say no. I was like, no, no, man, that's it. That, <laughs> that's not me, man. No, 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 no. I, but yeah. the point is, is luckily, you know, and again, this is, one of the many wonderful moments that I've had with Case, you know, and it's funny, there are things that he probably wouldn't remember this in a million years, but it's one of the most, it's one of those pivotal moments in my life. Um, I still, this many decades later, can remember that lunch when he looked at me and said something very much along the lines of, um, you know, you're meant for so much more than this. He's like, you, you know, this is great. You're doing this great stuff as, as psycho. He goes, you're, you're the best metal radio promo guy out there. He's like, but you should be the best radio promo guy out there, you know? And, and he, 
you know, he, he had that faith in me and, mm-hmm. and, um, look, this, it wasn't that hard of a sell. He wasn't looking to try and steal me from a company. He was trying to give me expansion. <sighs> Again, Make a lot you of realize your own stuff. potential, all that kind of stuff. He was developing you. To- absolutely. 1000%. So luckily, of course, I listened to the man. Um, and then the, the thing is, is poor grunt truck you know here's the thing and i love that band and mm. when i say poor grunt truck is this is what they were forced to go through you're talking about the seattle grunge explosion nirvana yeah. sound garden you know screaming trees alice in chains you know all these bands and they're a community in seattle uh all these bands are exploding and here, I mean, we're talking on an unprecedented scale, some of these bands, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, look at the bands I just mentioned. Nirvana changed the world. Soundgarden, the best of the Seattle bands. Mm. Uh, I don't care what anyone says. I stand by that. Uh, <laughs> Alice in Chains, you know, uh, brilliance, huge, multi-platinum. Ex- so here comes Gruntruck, who want a piece of that. Uh, and now they're on this independent label who, with this brand new promo guy who's trying his damnedest and, you know, had he absolutely my top priority and my focus. And we were, we were definitely having success, but we were not prepared yet. Our whole system was growing. And so they weren't able to benefit from a big machine already in place. And so I think that was where a lot of their frustration came really? in, of course. You've got to think about the timescales here as well. This is 91. This, is, this isn't a reactive signing. This is a proactive signing. It was it, – it really, we were not behind the curve. Um, yeah. It was – right. This is in the thick of things. So they're seeing all this stuff happening mm. and – they're like, oh, great, we want this too. You know, well, we should have this too. And, you know, they're not, look, were they as good as Soundgarden, Allison Chains, and Nirvana? I don't know about that, but they mm. were a great band. Um, and they certainly, it's like, it's not, it's not regrets. And I'm, and I'm bummed for them. It was wonderful for, for us. Yeah. Um, and, it was great. I mean, I still love the band and um, feel bad for those that are no longer with us, but it, it's, they, they definitely, they wanted more than we were able to, I think, deliver at the time. Um, okay. Okay. And it's, it's, it's because it wasn't just a successful trend. You're talking about one of those major musical shifts in history. The grunge movement was was one of those major musical shifts. Yeah. And it was like, so those that didn't get the success, they felt it. Mm. Yeah, and slipped through the, the, the cracks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I need to ask more questions about things that I just have no clue about. Because normally I try and do research. <laughs> I try and hit the beats and try and expand on the beats. But Grunge Truck, I just know they're a good grunge band. They existed, then they didn't exist. And then there was some legal precedent, which is my wheelhouse, which I'm interested in. And, and yeah, it, you touched on something which was quite interesting as well, which was mm-hmm. Roadrunner wasn't necessarily mobilized infrastructurally to deal with something that big. Um, when I was speaking to Marcus 
his contention was, um, I'm trying to, let me just try and organize my thoughts and the personnel involved. It was, it starts with 93 to 95, which is obviously, as we discussed at length, the typo campaign, mm-hmm. the goal happens and there's a lot of credibility. Um, and there's a lot of drive again, still in that emergo sort of that, that conventional or contemporary rock space. Mm-hmm. And as such, there is a requirement for the label to mobilize infrastructurally on a much bigger scale because now they are a gold RIAA certified body and vehicle. Two, two personnel are introduced, Coast to Phrase and Derek Shulman. I think I'm right in t- saying Coast and Derek were sort of 95 through to 2001 around about then in and thereabouts. Did you feel that expansion and that mobilization? Did you feel that there was now an agenda to make things bigger than they already were? Well, there's no question. You know, it's it was a very exciting uh, growth that happened mm. over a course of a few years. I mean, I can also, you know, as for as much as we just talked about the whole grunt truck thing, you know, grunt truck. And that whole thing were a tremendous help for what did come afterwards, which was the typo thing. Um, right. Because now I'm, I'm in that world. Um, and I'm trying to think if there was anything else that I had taken. Um, there really wasn't. It was Grunt Truck was, was it. And I don't, it, it literally went from Grunt Truck into typo. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had opened doors with Grunt Truck. Um, and I, I don't want it to come across like I was using Grunt Truck for typo. Sure. Not, not true. Can, can I make an analogy that might help you? Yeah, yeah sure. Blue Mountain opened the door for Nickelback in a, in a contemporary way, in a similar kind of way. A- absolutely. It, no question. it breaks the mold in which you inhabit later. Right. Sorry, carry on. And, and it, but it also, and it put me in that world, you know, and which was, uh, and it was interesting because, you know, I had to, again, <laughs> you have this crazy long haired metal head going by the name of Psycho, who was calling these mainstream programmers as the name Psycho from Roadrunner. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like, it was really, it was kind of like, what the these these guys who are not used to this you know it was i was my own little version of like what the hell is is and then i was uh and so i think had i come to them first with typo it's like so i was able to open the doors and deal with these uh mainstream radio contemporaries whether they be the programmers the radio independents stuff like that Mm -hmm. with this and then the typo thing which again was a two-year-long uh, huge campaign, and so and, and with great payoff. Not just in the fact that it was our first gold record, but it, mm-hmm. in everything, it was it, you're right. Credibility and money, um, and establishing us in every department, we were now bigger, more successful. Yeah. Um, and so, right. It, it's and again, remember, it, we were always trying to be bigger. And so there was always an attempt to bring in players into the team that were going to raise the bar. And yes, you can definitely see that 
you start to get to around 94, uh, 94, 95, we were definitely, I mean, look, look, we, it was like, look, success breeds success. You start getting that you have to, you have to grow and you have Mm -hmm. to keep it going and you have to continue this stuff and you have to bring in the bigger name players while you're hot Mm -hmm. to keep that snowball going down the hill. Yeah. That's, that's just the way it is. So yes, you definitely felt a, an ex, it wasn't even a, a pressure to succeed, although of course there was, mm-hmm. but also the excitement to succeed. We were all of us like, oh my God, we're getting bigger because everyone wanted it. I mean, everyone wanted to, to be bigger. None of us were there mm-hmm. going, ooh, I can't, I'm so excited to keep us as seven people in a room. No, everyone wanted to be big, no question. How do you creep the scope out then? It, do you just find yourself with more of a budget to promote with? Or do you find yourself with, is it, is, is it simply that? Or is there now like a network which you previously did not have a connection which, with, which you now can take advantage of? Is that what is that what an expansion looks like in the record industry in mid-90s? Well, yes, you certainly, right. You are allowed to play with bigger players. Okay. Um, you know, when you're, when you're the little kid, uh, you get to play with the little kids. Uh, you're at the kids' table. And so as you grow and you get more success and more credibility and people believe that you can deliver, because a big part of it is, is this is obviously, this is big business. And so uh, people want to, you know, the, the larger entities, for me, for example, the bigger radio stations for the sales department, the bigger sales contacts, you know, for the press department, the bigger magazines, they want to know that they're backing something mm-hmm. that is going to bring them good business. It's all, yeah. you know, it's like no one wants to be like, you know, it's all well and good to be like, dude, Rolling Stone magazine should put the unsigned band on the cover because that would be cool cred. Yeah, but that doesn't sell magazines. Mm. Um, you know, I could sit there and say the the big rock radio station in New York or LA should should add the unsigned band into regular rotation because that would be cool. It's not good business. Hmm. So they want to know that they're getting in bed with a good business partner. And you're allowed to now play in that bigger world because of your success. So that's why Typo really were so important to us because it established us as a successful entity. Um, and it was with such a cool, unique band too. Mm. Um, I think that's what was so important. Another thing that was so important was that we didn't just get lucky with, let's just say, let's just say that it was Grunt Truck. And we all of a sudden had our big grunge band. Well, that would be great, fantastic. And it would absolutely have, have changed us and it would be wonderful and not a negative thing to be said, but we also would be another successful grunge band. Whereas instead, we really established ourselves with something that was unlike anything else out there. Um, so that yeah. really makes a statement where it was like, what the hell are these guys at Roadrunner doing? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. We really did continue to try and kind of, you know, mess with things, you know? I mean, there was a point where, again, I mean, there was a point when I took Sepultura's Rada Mahata to commercial radio. You know, you're talking about, you know, one of the largest metal bands in the world with a Portuguese rhythmic tribal sounding song. Mm. Um, It was like, and we didn't get a lot of success, but we did get some. But again, it was like, what the hell are these guys doing? And it was like we were 
marching to our own beat. And that's yeah. what, so damn cool. We were marching to our own beat. And it's I think, saying. yeah. And I think that's where you start to see the nickel backlash. <laughs> um, and again, and I support those guys to my last breath. Mm. Um, absolutely. They are some of the nicest, hardest working guys whose only crime was that they succeeded. Yep. That's it. Um, and so, but they're, they also, they were guilty of being a more standard sounding rock band uh, versus something completely left field. Um, it's like, so, so there, so they were guilty of not being bizarre. You, you know what I'm saying? I think it was at a time where bizarre was very much in vogue. Yeah. The only thing is it wasn't bizarre was Nine Lives by Aerosmith, which is a fucking killer album, but it just set it set the tone of all oh, right, there's a zeitgeist here of legacy acts who who occupy the common ground of what we understand to be contemporary rock and roll. And then Nickelback came and said, actually no, we can modern modernize this sound. And it tread the line right in between the extremes of new metal and the extremes of like a, a maybe a slightly um scattered extreme metal scene. But mm -hmm. I, I do agree. I think their only trying was being successful, but we can unpack that. Oh, I did want to ask yeah. <laughs> a, couple more, a couple more 90s things, and I want to jump yeah, into the 2000s yeah, yeah. with both feet. Um, did you catch up on the Apple Knockers Flophouse stuff? <laughs> I, I read that story that you sent me. Absolutely. I, I did not get a chance to, to dive too much deeper, but God, that's wonderful. I love it. That's so case, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah he understands the value of um making a splash and in a similar capacity we have certain controversies in the road i'll say controversies oh man that's that's shit word it's almost a dirty word in the context of how i'm, I'm trying to build it up basically shit happened which the label lead into really nicely playgirl um glenn benton shooting squirrels shit like that was did you guys lean into it and was there anything else that I've missed into, that might not be quite as legendary as those examples, which were used to the, the label and the brand's credit um, advantage. We, we absolutely would. We had no fear of leaning into uh, stuff like that. I mean, look, the playgirl thing. <laughs> oh, look, that was a great opportunity. Um, and, I think that there's that Peter had some regrets on that to the end of his days. Um, but, you know, he, he definitely look. Peter absolutely uh, loved to. Well, the band, I mean, it wasn't just Peter. I mean, mm. in my dealings with the guys still to this day, they still want to do certain things uh, that, you know, uh, offend people. Um and it's my responsibility to try and stop them, to, much to their dismay. Um, but it, it, like, because Peter would go on Jerry Springer and stuff like yeah. that. It's, uh, and then, you know, Glenn Benton. Oh my God, Glenn was perfect. I mean, he. You're talking about a guy. I mean, you're looking for those personalities. Uh, everything from the shooting squirrels, the branding, the upside down cross in his forehead. And, and he also had an incredible 
talent for saying things that would offend and get the press and uh it was he he it was it was great um and and it really it helped the dsi thing and of course we fueled into that um uh, we talked last time about the brujeria thing Mm. um i mean that whole thing was a uh uh, at first, was a lean into controversy. You know, I mean, it was like the uh, the album cover was, you know, not carryable in certain stores, in a lot of stores. Um, you know, and and again, we we tried to sell the storyline that that poor Monty was kidnapped with a bag over his head and forced to do the deal because they were. I mean, like you weren't allowed to say who was in the band. Mm. They were Mexican banditos, not. A bunch of metal na- real name guys uh, making a side project. Mm. Uh, so yeah, look, there's no question. Uh, controversy, hell yeah, absolutely. Who it was, got you, you the fine line though of like we wanted to do this stuff, but you never wanted to do anything that would hurt the label. It was a delicate thing. This is this is the thing. Did it ever blow up in your face in that sense? Have we been lucky for thirty years? Yeah. I, I'd say lucky because nothing ever hurt us. Mm. Not that I can think of. And if it did, then obviously it wasn't enough to leave a lasting memory for me. It's like there was I mean, look, there was always times where uh people would get offended and you know, and that but that's good, you know. I mean yeah. it's controversy is good. Um but yeah, there was nothing that ever really scarred us nothing no. ever hurt us who got great cat on martin downey whose idea was that oh, the great cat that's one of the few acts that you know a good chunk of her history does predate me and i was there for part of it um at the time i was just this metal radio intern slash part-timer but that would have been the press department Mm. um because that's who does the the tv stuff um she was well still is she's still going god God bless her um she's still doing her great cat thing yeah man (laughs) yeah and good for her and good yeah yeah, absolutely she's great (laughs) all right let's let's dive in feet first to the stuff I know about, but I feel like it's so, everything's so well recorded that I'm at risk of just retreading shit that everyone already knows. And that's the fear. And that's just the risk I'm going to carry. And I'm very happy making myself look like a knobhead on this podcast as I have done for the last, what, nearly 80 hours doing it. So that's fine. So we got off last time on that. It was like an 18 month period. Silverside up and Slipknot, Maniah, all that stuff happened. Universal stuff happened in, in that 18, two-year um, period. Was it anticipated? Was there a bubbling at sort of in the sort of 98 times where it was like, we've got a few things, we're looking around at a few things and something's going to blow up? Or was it completely no idea this was going to happen? Let's start with Slipknot because... Right. You know, it's funny. There was a. What's interesting is there. There is a brief period that I, of course, did miss because I had left for three years. What year did um, you come back? Sorry, 
Well, okay. I came back would have been because uh, I came back to set up the first single leader of men for Nickelback. Uh, so, so I worked the entirety of, the, of them. So a single of the reissue, because I think the first time it came out was 98. Was it? Uh, I believe it was 97. I came back. Let's, let's hang on. Well, no, it's well, look when, when we put it out, I mean, this is what I mean. Yeah. You're right. It, there, it did come out in Canada, but not in the U.S. September '99. Um, right, exactly. I was going to say perfect. So, so, I came back where Slipknot had started. Yes, uh, and we're still, you know, in in the the early exciting phase, but still we're we're young, and and Nickelback. So it's to say the lead up to those, you know, it's funny because I had left and I had worked at, it was the enclave working for Tom Zutat mm-hmm. and then working for TVT, uh, working with, uh, with seven dust and Steve Gottlieb, which is a whole other insanity. Um, and I remember the Nickelback demos were floating around mm-hmm. and we had gotten it at the TVT offices and, I had I heard it and I remember going, God, this is a great band like Bush. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you were saying. Like, yeah, and so I wound up going over back over to Rotor to work for Dave Lanco, as we had talked about. Um, now, so to say, you know, was it expected? Well, there was definitely an excitement. I can't tell you what it was like with the signing of Slipknot, but it mm. certainly would have been there would have been a lot of expectation, a lot of excitement because of this unique band. Um, you know, there's there's the two different successes. You know, Slipknot were certainly, I mean, that is the quintessential extreme Roadrunner success. To yeah. take this metal band, this extreme metal band, and to break it wide open. I mean, that's the the ultimate version of what Roadrunner was doing in those early years. Um, like I said, that's the payoff to all that other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a vision of that that was what Sepultura probably would have been um, versus, yep. you know, I mean, this was, but the, the OzFest tour really was like, I mean, that's so well documented. You know, that, that slot on the OzFest tour was so pivotal in the early days of Slipknot. Um, and so a big part of what Roadrunner would do and what we would do, and like, for example, what I tried to do with, with Sepultura, was we would take these existing real stories out there in the real world, sales stories, you know, like these bands are doing well and we don't need your mainstream uh, stuff, except now we want your mainstream stuff. Um, we were forcing our way into the the mainstream world with by by the strength of our you know uh sales and and fan base numbers yeah so slipknot quite obviously they got on that tour and it was like the world just went holy shit what the hell mm-hmm. and because they're slipknot um yep. and and so that allowed that to go and that was certainly extremely exciting you know the nickelback thing was a lot more I think there, the expectation you're talking about was a lot heavier on Nickelback because it was Dave Lanco was brought in 
to take us to the next level of commercial radio. He was brought in, and they had always been trying to bring in the right big game player for rock radio. Through And there was uh, a number of swing and a misses, <laughs> which mm. is what led to leaving, because they kept on bringing people in to be above me that were misfires. Um, and the first good one they brought in yeah. was while I was gone. Uh, which was Dave Lanco. And I had interviewed for him at, while he was at RCA. And yes. so uh, I had wanted to work for him when Joe Gujuk was looking to leave, who was a friend of mine. He, I t We talked about some of this last time. Yes. Uh, so I then came back. But the point is, is, so there was always an expectation that Dave was going to bring us to the next level. And Dave was putting it all on Nickelback. You know, yeah. Dave was like, this is the band that we are going to break this label with. So then that was the, we'd spent two years working silver side, or not silver side, the state, mm -hmm. uh, not silver side up. Obviously that set up silver side up. Um, and, and we still didn't break through. I mean, we spent a, a, an exorbitant amount of money to sell like 200,000 records working three singles. Um, but like I was saying with grunt truck opening the door, and setting the playing field for what came next. Same thing. To Everything leave, did with the state set us up for... And this is the thing, and you mentioned this last week about, just to put, close the door on Slipknot on this kind of, yeah. on this analysis. No disrespect to anyone, but Slipknot was always going to happen on their own terms, and that's what happened on those first 2000, uh, 1999. That was, there was always going to be a thing. So they did a lot of that work in, in a weird way. And that's why it was, it was exploded in the way that it did because they were a firecracker. And maybe, maybe it's a question for Monty as to how Roadrunner captured that. Um, and I have bought some books, but I did no fucking time to read them. Um, but Nickelback is a different story because as you said, there was an expectation because there was a design to go into commercial radio. And that's what Dave Lonko was all about. Secondarily, Nickelback knew it as well because they'd even got their own label and they're pushing things on their own terms in Canada because they knew that they were working full-time to achieve the same result. That's a different story altogether, isn't it? It's a different modus operandi. The most, and even rock bands, never mind metal bands. Those, they, look, Nickelback and Slipknot are two dramatically different stories, 100%. And, yeah. you're right, and, it's, and it was so exciting to have these vastly different stories together um you know i understand what you're saying about how slipknot was going to happen regardless and without trying to insult any of my uh roadrunner family members to a huge degree you're right mm -hmm. um slipknot are a force to be reckoned with they were uh unbel they 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 were Slip mode, well, they still are. But I am they paraphrasing, were of course, for the purposes no, 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 of analysis. Yeah. So now that is not to remove any of the uh, insane amounts of hard work that we all did, because yeah. obviously they did need a good support team, mm -hmm. um, and we did a lot of work. And so again, it's it's. I I don't think that anyone could look though and see that the uh, explosion of out there in the street that happened when they, when the world saw them, look, we rode that and we fueled that and, and, and we, we took it and we grew it, 
But you're right. Slipknot was going to come out and, and make an explosion. And it was just a matter of who was going to be the one and were they going to effectively take it to the next level. Nickelback was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears because now you're talking about something, like I said, they were not bizarre. They were not different. Now, they had someone in Chad Kruger, again, not discounting the other guys, but Chad, of course, is the guy. He's he, right. He's incredibly ambitious. Uh, he is a, a smart businessman. Um, yeah, okay, sometimes he puts his foot in his mouth, but um, whatever. The point is, is you, you definitely, you're right. He absolutely, he and some of his business partners that he had, had a vision from day one. Um, and you have, again, people want to rip on the guy. I respect him to no end mm. because he is, he's a combination of a smart businessman with great ambition and a great songwriter. You know yeah. what? Don't like him. I don't care. That guy is an amazing songwriter. And again, People like to go out there and and look. Everyone knows about the the Nickelback thing. Yep. I still I say it again and again. I defend them to my last breath. I'm going to let's let's disregard backlash as in the content of the backlash. We'll talk about backlash as an entity. But mm -hmm. as I've grown older and cynical in the internet age, I've realized that 99% of all words that are, dis, uh, are spoused on the internet, written or otherwise, are of low value dialogue. So. We could go into the, the ifs and whys of why Nickelback receives such backlash. That's a different documentary. That's a different thing. Um, so I'm going to put, I'm going to, let's put, a, let's show a cork up its ass now and we'll talk about the, the actual fact of the matter, which is 10 times platinum and diamond, which is fucking ridiculous. But the, the, the sort of thing has left me with a question, just meditating on it while he, while he said it. The train was going with Slipknot. The train was going. So the question I've got, and this is not for you, this is for anyone in that world. It may be a Corey Brennan question. It's probably a Monty question, which is why Roadrunner? And it's probably down to that conversation you'd have with jo uh, Joey Jordison saying they, they, they understand the legacy and they understand what it was about. Again, I'm not, that's just a guess. But that's, given that we've now got two completely separate stories at the absolute climax of this wider tale of the label, I feel like now... The fork's in the road there, and that's where I'm going to go with Slipknot. The question is why. And the, with Slipknot, with um, Nickelback, as you've said there, it's it's a different it's a different tale. It's been built up. It's been designed in a way because we're wanting to be a a conventional commercial uh, radio arm, I guess. So again, maybe more. There's I've got other questions around the negotiations with. Was it 609 Studios? Um, whatever Chad's label was. And the intricacies of how they managed to dangle the carrot in front of there. But let's go into what we were just talking about, which is expectation versus reality and backlash as a grand obstacle. Because up to this point... Backlash has probably managed through controversy, right? Here's the thing is, uh, you know, and I see where you're going on this is, first of all, side note is, is I do find, I always find it uh, humorous, you know, some of the stuff you touched on there. Um, you know, Island did the deal for Slipknot and didn't, you know, they, 
they wanted Slipknot because that was yep. the, the the big thing. And Nickelback was kind of like, oh, by the way, <laughs> look at uh, surprise. <laughs> um, it, it's what Slipknot. What happened was is look. I mean, and I know this has been talked about. Um, you know, the there was a radio. Uh, we have in the radio department. We have there'll be a one guy who mm-hmm. would oversee the department. And then there would be uh, regionals, you know, guys who would handle uh, the territories, you know, underneath the main guy. Uh, That's the setup of the department. And so we had a regional um, named John, John Kuliak, who was in the Midwest, who uh, had brought the, 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 I think it was spit it out or whatever it was, whatever was the demo uh, to Monty. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, you know, and again, and, and I actually wasn't there at the time. That was when mm-hmm. Joe was sitting in my seat. <laughs> um, and so that's how Monty got in there. And my guess is the negotiations probably were pretty comfortable in that, first off, think about this. These big machines were not like, they weren't looking for something like Slipknot. You know, no. they're, they're no way. Um, so now you're talking about, you know, a limited number of labels that would have been looking for a band like Slipknot. Mm-hmm. And now you're talking about a guy like Monty, who obviously lives and breathes and can you know not only talk the talk, but has, you know, walked in front of everyone walking the walk. Um, so, you know, you're a guy who, who comes in with this legacy of his own history mm-hmm. uh, to sit and talk to the guys. And so now, and you're talking about a label that has a, a level of success. Like I said, when you look at the labels that could have been Roadrunner, uh, you know, Metal Blade, uh, Century Media, Earache, Noise, it's like, look at the ones, you know, so we really were, you know, we were the big dog in that world. When you think about it, that is the list, isn't it? Yeah. There are others, but that's the list. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah listen. I, I could sit here and okay now uh, well, well Peaceville um, you know you know it's like they, yeah there are a few others yes. no question about it but right uh, Megaforce um, you know it, but it was Roadrunner um, it, it, so Monty was probably with passion able to close that deal with I'm guessing relatively few hurdles in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not, I don't know if there were any issues, but they obviously worked it out and it was the right guy. I mean, that what you got with so many of these bands that we signed was we were where they always dreamed of being anyway. So yep. Then it was a matter of working out the negotiations. Um, so yeah, it's like, it's, that's how it happened in that the radio guy who got word from probably the radio station in Des Moines, um, hey, check out this band, there's something happening here, because mm-hmm. that happens all the time. Um, you know, I, us radio guys were constantly having stuff thrown at us, and eight times out of ten, it was nothing, but sometimes you would get some, you would have this gem sent your way. Um, and so we would send it in. And so that's what happened. And then, I mean, it's certainly, you know, we believe that they were going to be, look, you, you believe in something special, you believe something's good and, mm. you know, 
you can see, okay, this one is going to be big because yeah. every record comes out with different levels. Of like, okay, this is going to be good. And we think it's going to sell uh, 50,000, 100,000. We think this one's going to be huge. Um, you, you, so then you spend accordingly based on your expectations. Mm-hmm. So Slipknot certainly had big expectations. Yeah, yeah. Where was it going with Nickelback? Yeah. Um, oh, the backlash thing? You know, there was none for the longest time. Yeah. You, know, it, it, you have to, okay, now it's this thing that you can't not talk about. Mm. They were one of the biggest bands on the planet. There was no, I mean, the backlash was only with the metal core of the Roadrunner base. Mm. But that's not the mainstream success world, obviously. Um, You know, so, I mean, you talk about, I mean, it's like Nickelback. They were, it was massive. And there was nothing but love and success. And we were, it was everywhere. Everything we did with Nickelback, we were one of those records that things shifted around for. You know, there are records that are so big that things moved because we were going to do something. Um, yeah. Tell me about that then, because it, pr- promo isn't just volume, it's strategy as well. So how do you go about platinum records in that sense? It, it's, you know, obviously there's a, a once you, okay, once Silver Side Up explodes um, and you now have, I mean, how you remind me was not just a hit it was like a ridiculous hit it was mm-hmm. the kind of hit that you know doesn't happen every year um it, it, it this was it wasn't just a success story it was an oh my god success story yeah um and then of course we had the follow-up singles um and so the things and now after that so now of course the pressure is massive on the band to deliver um, and it was like, so, so they would, they'd go do their record. They would, I mean, and then of course, then, then there's, I mean, singles choices are now happening in, you know, deep dark rooms. <laughs> um, and it was like, and things are now handled under lock and key because you right, know, this okay. is still at a time when things leaking could be a huge problem. You know, it's funny. Oh, wow. We're in a whole different world. Oh, yeah. Well, we're in a different world now. Uh, this digital world we're in, it's like we're honestly, first off, everything is going to leak at some point. But mm-hmm. it's also because everything is about streaming and stuff and not about how if it gets out and leaks, it could hurt your sales numbers. Um and, and again, this is this is well-known stuff in the music business, you know, where it's like because everyone had to buy it to get it. Um, and so if it leaked and, you know, people could get it for free, then it could hurt your numbers. So everything Mm. was handled, things were handled under lock and key. Um, and when we would drop a single, it was, I mean, again, there are some songs that when they get dropped to radio, they, everything, like everything else has to react to that. Because for example, because radio stations, these, these are known as event records. Um, and 
everything. It's like they're going to, you know, throw this thing on the air the minute they get it because it's like, oh, my God, we got to premiere this thing. And yeah. it's going to all get played the shit out of for the entire – like, it's it's everything massive, massive. Once you once get to a certain weight – I'm going to use the word weight yes. – exclusivity from other third parties and other interested parties matters a lot more. Yes. And that's an information uh, dissemination that needs controlling. Everyone wants, everyone wants to, to get their exclusive things and you can't yeah. do exclusives because you're going to piss off partners. It's a much more uh, delicate political dance. Um, and so you learn how to, I mean, this was a great growth process for every one of us because it was, you know, you really, you learned, politics on a whole new level now um being able to because you couldn't you couldn't return exclusive favors to those who'd been there from the beginning as much as you wanted to yeah as much as you want to be like you were there from day one so you 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 get presents you get exclusive Uh, you can't do Mm. that so much anymore zane loves got it today yeah right you have to find other ways to repay those who were there from day one, but you get to a point where you need everybody. You need everyone across the board. And so it's right. It's huge. And so, and look, and Chad would occasionally stick his foot in his mouth because sometimes he would, you know, look, he's, he's a small town guy from Hannah, Alberta. um, Who look, who doesn't stick their foot in their mouth? The problem Mm. is, is when you or I stick our foot in our mouth, it doesn't get spread. Um, they also, I think you talk about where the backlash came. So now you're talking years later, um, after we've now become so big and, you know, and sometimes when things get so big there, there, you see some of that, but the difference, for example, um, between say Creed, although Mm. there are big differences, um, because Scott Stapp had a history of bad behavior, that Chad didn't have. Mm. Um, the thing is, is the difference, for example, is intermedia or internet and social media. Mm-hmm. Um, it now becomes easier to spread this. It becomes a cool thing. The abuse goes viral. Yeah. Um, and so that's something that, for example, that Creed didn't have. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah everyone made fun of Creed, and but it took longer, and so it took hold slower. Mm-hmm. Whereas as social media grew, it became it, it became a really, really cool thing because, as we all know, the internet is is built on abuse. Um, it, everything that gets every comment that ever gets said is either a diehard fan saying it's the greatest thing in the world or you know or someone more than likely there's trolls trying to rip things apart um i like the politically agnostic term of mostly worthless dialogue absolutely it it is Mm. social media is toxic um and that's and nickelback were were victims of that it's it, it became the they became the cool one to abuse. They became the punchline, and it fueled itself and took on a life of its own. How did that impact the, the perception of the label? Because remember, the social media is a new thing. It's a new information stream. 
do some people buy into the backlash and go, what we're we doing? Or for example, Case, who's probably not a prominent internet user, did he think, shit, is this band that we've been sponsoring for the last five or six years, is this actually a shit band? Or was everyone just like, no, this is just white noise in the background of, of, of general pop culture? You know what? It's, um, you know, the old, the old joke, uh, oh, that band sells out or that band sold out. Uh, yep. Every night. <laughs> um, it's like, here's the thing. We didn't care. I mean, we cared, but we didn't care. Meaning they, it's like they were laughing their way to the bank. I mean, maybe they mm -hmm. weren't laughing. Cause I mean, obviously they're human beings and they're good guys with real feelings. Yeah. But the point is, is, but at the same time, they were selling out every night in arenas across America. They were selling, again, plaques on walls, you know, for every single release they put out. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's like, look, while while Chad's being put on cribs because of his insane house, it's like, is he really worried about what some trolls are saying on the Internet? Uh, maybe when he's in the privacy of his own home, he's, he's upset. But at the end of the day, the, life was treating them really, really well. Um, yeah. Let's so. look at the more, <laughs> uh, let's look at the knock on effects for Roadrunner because platinum equals good. There's, there's one thing I want to touch on first. It's kind of a sidestep. I think I can't remember who it might have been Howie Abrams. Um, someone told me that Case's ambition, his his life's goal with Roadrunner was to achieve an, a platinum record in the United States. Was that what do you understand that to be his goal at the time as well? I'm not not just like as a generic the that this is a measure of success, but Case like that's the thing I want. When he achieved that, I want to find out if once he achieved that, was he then looking at retirement afterwards? Obviously, he didn't. But no. was he? No, that, that was the that was the goal to that point. And then there was more. Right. Then there was bigger goals. It, it was like, look, it, it's there's no question. First, you want a gold record. We got it with typo. Then mm -hmm. you want a platinum record. We got that with Slipknot, and then yep. we got that with typo. Um, it was like it's. Okay. Well, now it's like you you want bigger, bigger, bigger. Uh, no question. Yeah, he was. Um, there's no. I don't know that he has that whole desire to retire thing. I don't know that he wants to sit around reading books and you know having coffee. Um, mm. Even now, at yeah. this very moment, I don't think he has is looking at retirement. Um, <laughs> Some people yeah. are like that. My dad's like that too. Um, you know, it's like retirement is one step closer to death. Some people just they they work, they work, they work, and that's not an insult. Um, God bless them. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't know whether I'm going to get to that point. You get to a point of sitting around, you want to kill yourself because you're sitting there, you're bored out of your mind. Um, some yep. people are like, so I think that's the case. I don't think he even. If he ever thought retirement, uh, it was probably a bad dream. <laughs> point to point being, even though it was objective, it wasn't an indicator of the end of the road of that particular path in any particular way. And we know that anyway, because he was still with it. But, you know, I'm just wondering if there was some sort of dialogue around it, but it doesn't matter. Um, but the knock-on effect to Nickelback, my expectation, and I'm trying to, trying to choose my words carefully, is that the, the, the demographic 
that was buying Roadrunner records as products changed exponentially, foundationally with Nickelback. It's no longer it's no longer fringe music in the sense. We are now looking at a more mainstream market. We're probably now looking, I, I, I think women for a start, I bet that as a demographic, we're seeing the numbers climb there. I don't think there were as many women buying, say, extreme metal records. Was that true? Did Nickelback bring in more people to the party? Well, well, certainly, yes. I mean, we were selling numbers between, well, between Slipknot and Nickelback, obviously, we were selling, you know, crazy numbers, which is great. And that brought us more, and there was more bands that were like, I mean, obviously, Nickelback brought us Theory of a Dead Man and, you know, stuff like that. Um, but look, there's no question that you got, you, now you're at a point where, look, how many people would say, used to say, I would buy it just because it had that logo. If it had that logo, I knew it was going to be good. Mm. Well, we grew, and so you lose some of that. Um, and as a business, then that's that's certainly an acceptable thing. Obviously, we're selling a lot more, um, you know, than we ever were. So money. I mean, look, we were bigger, bigger, bigger. Uh, obviously, we were growing exponentially. We were getting these big partners. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's all this success. So there's no one inside who is thinking anything other than, oh, my God, this is awesome. Um, I mean, we were still Roadrunner, you know, yeah. and it's like it wasn't like, you know, when you, okay, it was Nickelback, which is still, which is a rock band. You know, it, it, at our core, we were uh, guitar bass drums vocals you know it's like it's like yeah yeah we were a metal label who evolved into a bigger rock label but it's not like we weren't a pop label mm. the pop success we had was with rock bands yeah we weren't signing cardi b you know it was like we were still so so everyone inside was ecstatic because mm. We wanted success. Again, no one wanted us to stay. The no one was we we wouldn't have hired anyone at the time who didn't want to be bigger, bigger, bigger. Yeah. Uh, and so, and we were still bringing in. You know, you start talking about. I mean, when you look at some of the. I mean, we're still bringing in bands like. Uh, at what point was? I mean, Kill Switch Engage comes along. You know. Um, you know, there's another, you know, plaques on wall band. Trivium, you know, it's interesting. You know, it, it's, I think, I thought about it because I saw the shirt. And it's funny. I think that they were one of the ones, I felt bad for them for a minute. Um, <laughs> because, and I don't remember who started it, but it wasn't the radio department. <laughs> um they were because obviously look i love trivia i love them mm -hmm. as people i love them as a band um flat out something unfair was done to them uh because of the expectations yeah. which is we, we we put out that first record and someone inside tagged them as they're the next metallica there is no next metallica you you, you don't you don't put that on, especially on a baby band. Um, yeah. Say, 
oh, they're going to be the next band that's going to change the face of music on this earth. Because that's what Metallica did. You know, they were one of those bands that literally changed the face of music on this planet for mm-hmm. rock, for, for guitar-based music. They're that big. So, and then you do that to these young kids. So now you're fueling these young egos mm-hmm. and it like it, it gave them a stumble you know um because first off again people now are saying oh you know these guys are such you know egotistical no it was a marketing thing mm. it wasn't that hefe saying i'm going and then, of course he had confidence he still does mm-hmm. um and so he has lots of confidence good i want my rock stars to have confidence um but he wasn't out there saying, I'm going to I mean, he's certainly a Metallica fan. Who wasn't? Metallica changed my life, too. Um, yeah. I'm glad he was a Metallica fan. Thank you. Um, but it, it, And that gave them a stumble. And luckily, look, I've loved watching the Trivium story. I've always, because I love how they evolve. And um, it's, I wish they had su- have succeeded to this point on a bigger level. Because Matt certainly has well, all of them, but they, they they certainly want things like plaques on walls. Um, but obviously, they're uh, they're succeeding on their own terms, and you know Matt's doing all this awesome stuff. Uh, you know he's doing great in all sorts of factors in his life. I find that that as a as a through line as you've just sort of narrated it, I find that really difficult to reconcile because the UK experience with. Um, the UK experience with Trivium has always been god tier, always. It's ridiculous. I mean, even with the Crusade, I think that's what the stumbling that you might have been referring to the Crusade, where they went in some more thrashy direction and they dropped the screaming. Even I was like, "This is unorthodox," but I'm I'm all for it. I guess I was exactly the right age though because I was playing guitar and I didn't mind moving up to standard to learn those songs. I didn't mind trying to find something, some accessible singing because I couldn't scream, but I was a massive Ascendancy fan. One thing that needs to be done, someone needs to do a retrospective on the Crusade, down tune it and scream on it and see what it sounds like with like an Ascendancy sort of rig. Um, but yeah, it's, if you talk to my, I, I don't think that Trivium have put out a bad record. Um, no, absolutely I not. think it's, it, so I think there are records that I like more than others, but yeah. I literally think they have not put out a bad record yet. There are other bands. I don't think you can say that about Machine Head, but you can say that about Trivium. Um, and that's great. Okay, we're talking about opinions here, but there are Machine Head records, for example, and 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 I respect anyone for trying to do different stuff. So it's, mm-hmm. I mean, look, this is the, uh, the the older, wiser guy here. It's like, you know, I want my bands to try new things and there are going to be swings and misses. Um, but my point is, is yeah, yeah. Uh, Trivium are, 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 are great. They're still putting out great, exciting records. They're still trying different things every single time. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking forward to the next record already, you know? I wonder if because this is something about Matt Avery again. I don't, I don't fucking know the dude, but it's it's what we were talking about earlier in terms of trend setting and being slightly ahead of the curve, understanding the personalities. The A and R part of this is understanding the personalities that do that and getting them on your team. And I wonder if that's what Monty saw in those early days, especially around like um, In Between Inferno. Did he spot? Okay, this is a band that's going to constantly be ahead 
a little bit and is constantly going to do their own thing. I mean, you can't anticipate the Twitch thing. You can't anticipate um, uh, the trailblazing in that sense, but you can find the personalities, and that's a large part of it, I think. But it's you're um, as an A and R guy, you have to find not only the talent, uh, and you're looking for are they uh, good songwriters? Are they a good live band? Yeah. And do do they have the personality? Because you need a personality to attract people. You know mm. that that's that's fact. I mean, if you've got uh, you know if your frontman can't appeal to people, then it's not going to work. Uh, that's just it. I mean, your frontman needs to be uh, uh, needs to have an attraction for whatever it is. Um, and so obviously he, whatever it was that was the right combination that he saw at the time. Great. I mean, he obviously look, obviously Trivium are very talented. Obviously they are good songwriters. Obviously they're a really good metal band. Um, and he obviously, and look, and, and Monty had an eye, you know, still does, you know, but I mean, at the time, certainly he was, you know, he, he had an eye and he, mm -hmm. he saw him, um, and I'm glad, it, you know, and Matt and I have talked over the years, you know, um, about, you know, what happened. I mean, he had, he had to go through uh, a growth phase that most people get to go through without, you know, a spotlight, you know, yes. he, he had to go through that under a spotlight and, you know, he's certainly, I mean, those, those rough days are, are, so long gone. I mean, he's, you know, and he learned a lot from him and he became, look, he became a far better uh, businessman, frontman, personality. Mm -hmm. He became so much better at so much that, you know, because of that early, you know, hazing period. Yeah. Uh, and, and you're right. You are absolutely right. You're in a different territory because, I mean, look, there's no question. Um, you know, there are bands on Roadrunner that, you know, I could tell you about bands that are even much smaller on Roadrunner in the U.S. that play huge venues like a Blackstone Cherry. Um, yep. You know, so it, there's, there's definitely it's a different territories. But, you know, uh, and now Matt's obviously doing his thing. And, um, you know, it's it's great. I mean, you know, he's he is certainly smart enough to be finding all these new ways of, of supporting himself and growing the brand. Um, the story of, of Matt's innovation, and it's almost personal for me, it's almost personal because I think we're the same age and I think there are certain like growth spurts, which I relate to in my own professional sort of like capacity, in my own career and my own vote. The way I sort of perceive myself as a person is informed by certain steps and I see those steps having happened with him. And I'm like, this is so, I find it very interesting. And I think it's an age thing, but um, I digress. <laughs> I had a really good point. I've forgotten it. Um, oh, good. That's, that's a, it's a different. Yeah. <laughs> I think the, the story of, of Matt's innovation, it's, it happens in isolation of the label. And it happens in isolation. Because I think what part of what, I think part of his output now, the step he had to go through was to understand who he's not accountable to, not who he is accountable to. Well, you know, I do think that he is very lucky to, a part of the gift that, that Matt has 
of being on Roadrunner is that um, he it's the kind of label that will that allowed him the time to to grow because again he is the kind of guy that if given the time um because he, he again he continues to try different things he also you know he's had to go through all sorts of stuff you know as he has evolved his uh vocal styles you yep. know he went through to a point where he was having uh, throat issues, so he had to evolve himself. He got rid of the harsh vocals. Then he was able to evolve that and bring it back. Well, you know, there are so many labels that would have moved on while a band is going through all sorts of twists and turns like that. Uh, my guess, while I don't, and I'm certainly not there anymore, but I don't know that there's ever been even a question about continuing with Trivium because they're just they're just you know so ingrained in the label now. Um, and I think that, you know, he has been allowed to evolve and which is great and, and it's cool. And they don't, they certainly are, are very excited to, uh, allow him to keep on doing different things. I mean, I know I saw a recent post of his where they're working on the new record and I think it's supposed to be, they're going really heavy again is according to something he posted. So mm-hmm. let's, let's see. I mean, that, that it's great. You know? It's been an interesting arc because I think because I was like front row their first headlining gig after Ozfest 2005. So that was like a watershed moment for me, and I think it was a watershed moment for them, which is really cool. And as we go through the trajectory, I've sort of grown up, got a house, got a real job, all that sort of stuff. Last year, when what the Dead Men Say came out and lockdown kicked in, I am super nostalgic for that record. It's been out for like a year because of, it was an incredibly unique sort of experience, similar to when I was 16, front row of the cockpit. So now after this, I'm going to go for a run and listen to what the dead men say because I've got a weird feeling from it, like a really weird nostalgic feeling for it. And it's nice that bands can still do that. Really nice. It's a great record. I mean, it really is. Um, yeah. I'm excited for it. So, Yeah, yeah. We keep bringing it on. And we could get, you know what, man? We should definitely do like a part three of this where we just talk about <laughs> like the, the the developmental styles of particular artists. That's like a panel sort of conversation. But let's let's move into like some of the, the 2000s territory. Sure. So let me try and set the scene because again, in both feet, um, trying to understand and trying to break, trying to understand the brand and the company and the decisions they're making and how they're trying to interact with this new world. It's a new world, it's a digital world, and they're bigger. They've disrupted the status quo um, by having nine nut jobs sell platinum records while um, knocking certain people off the charts that I can't remember. Um, Then we enter a... Because he's still doing things. This this whole metalcore scene, this whole kill switch and trivium and, and chimera and, and il nino. This is still underground shit that's happening. Even though Universal are sat above you with the with the platinum generating um, incentives, was there ever a point from a business perspective where we have the commercial viability, but we're still doing the underground shit? Was there ever question? Was there ever any question about that, or was that always just like nope? We'll go rocking in on Monday and we're leaving on a Friday and this is the shit that we do. We didn't look at the heavy stuff as being as limited as the mainstream labels would have thought because we had already broken through with weird stuff. I right. think that look, you know what? My and my perspective is certainly biased and skewed. But 
I will say that a big part, and, and again, I, I go back to when you when your first big breakthrough is with something so unusual, like a mm-hmm. typo negative, and then a slip knot. Yeah. Um, you your perception is that things are not impossible. It, it's like you can do it because you've done it. Mm. So. You know, kill switch, for example, um, which, from my perspective, I was a big part of the getting them signed as well. Um, I don't know exactly. I mean, I could still remember the day uh, I was working late, and Mike Gitter yep. had, you know, who I was friends with forever. You know, I mean, I'd known Mike forever, um, and so he, you know, hey, called me to back by his office, and it seemed to me from my perspective, like he just wanted to play me this cool thing that he'd heard. Um, and it was a uh, temple from within from mm-hmm. the indie record. And I was like, Oh my God, this is amazing. The next day I came in and I went it, I was talking with Dave Lonco and I was like, man, Mike played me this thing last night. I'm like, it's got nothing to do with what we're doing here at commercial radio. I'm like, but man, it was so freaking cool um like this band kill switch engage it goes oh cool it goes and so he winds up we're there he goes he calls calls up mike from you know to his office and, hey come on play me this thing he plays it for dave dave's like wow this is really cool and it's really well and i'm watching this thing so now we i mean it, it becomes this snowball effect now me dave and mike walk into jonas's office who's our pre- the president at the time for so many yep. years I remember, and Jonas was early days roadrunner. You know, he was certainly a very successful president for us, but he also, he was, when when I got there, the seven people in the room, he was one of those seven people, yep. you know? So, uh, so we're talking to old school roadrunner. So he goes in now and he plays this thing for Jonas. And I swear, and I'm watching Mike, again, this is my perspective. So he may tell a different story, but it was like, it looked to me like Mike's like, what's going on here? And because now Jonas has listened to this thing, goes like, "Well, can we get them? Are they available?" Um, and Mike gave his answer of, "Yeah, pretty sure we can." Um, and at which point then, which leads to us signing Killswitch. Um, they signed to Ferret first, aren't they? Which is an imprint from someone in the office. I can't remember the chap's name. I'm sure it's uh, Paul Conroy. Yeah, that's the what that's it. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, which which is great, also. Um, Paul's awesome. Love Paul. Mm-hmm. So, uh, which is great. And the Killswitch are, are st- still to this day, one of my favorite bands of all time. Um, and it was, and that was uh, a whole other interesting thing. I mean, look, that that's a whole other story itself where we signed this amazing, credible metalcore band who with, you know, out of this Boston scene. Um, and right as we're starting to get things going, of course, the singer leaves. <laughs> um I have, a, I have a hot take from a co-host of the other sort of angle of this podcast. Yeah. Have you heard of Funeral for a Friend? I've heard of them. I, I, I've, and I've heard, but I've, I've not, I can't say. Mm. No, that's fine. then, Because we've got this theory that because their first run of albums, it was with um, Sanctuary, with um, Raw Power, it was with Rod Smallwood's management. Um, they were kind of regarded post-hardcore emo but when you listen to those records and you listen to Killswitch, you're like, they are, they've got more in common than they've got separate. 
So we, we've got this hot take where it's like it was unfair that they weren't branded part of this metalcore movement because they probably should have been anyway. There was, you know, there was a, and there was a scene coming out of, uh, you know, the Northeast, um, you know, and that, and that's fine. It's, it's great, you know, and mm-hmm. it was, it was exciting. And um, Killswitch certainly were, you know, I mean, look, it's, if you ask me, if you ask me, they're the best of the bunch, but I'm biased. So, yeah, yeah. And that was exciting. That was another one that we had obviously some tremendous success with, with Howard. Yes. Um, again, you know, plaques on walls for a band like Killswitch, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, um, I want to ask about Roadrunner United. <sighs> I didn't ask those in my question for some reason. I, some reason it escapes my mind. I get so hung up on like Slipknot and Nickelback when I completely forget like my own, my own staple from that year, which is that, that big year, 2005. Fully enough, my to tie to tie some of this together, I was in Minnesota that the day that I came out, the week that I came out. And I remember going to Best Buy, buy and I picked it up, bought it. thought, this is interesting. I must have picked it up on Blabbermouth, so it was happening. Um, went to the Mall of America, sat down at a sandwich, and Matt Heafy walks in <laughs> with Travis Smith. And we both look at each other like this. And then... We just thought, like, hey, it's not a move on. Because <laughs> I was like, that's too weird. <laughs> that is bizarre. That, that record is is amazing. I mean, it's – and obviously that was a Herculean project for, for Monty and for those yeah. four guys, you know, the, the four team captains. What did you um, – what were your initial thoughts when it, when it happened? Because it, it's – is it's beyond a compilation to celebrate a label, isn't it? It's beyond it's, – it's a complete different beast. It was, like I said, it was inconceivable because you're right. You're not talking about um, a compilation of the greatest. I, I have the three disc set somewhere of the, which was simply the um, greatest hits thing. You know, I mean, it, that's great. I'm glad I have it. Um, cool. Uh, mm. It's also not even grabbing some of the big bands that have them do some covers. Um, now you're talking about something. That and there's that. Yeah, yeah. Inconceivable because now, I mean, this is literally this to have these again, the four captains with it, Dino and Rob and Matt and Joey. Um, it was like, so Monty sitting there has to come up with who are going to be great enough songwriters to be the team captains, and then, yeah, and then to together all the each song has its own different band, and it's each song is, is its own freshly written song. It's like, oh my, this is insane. Um, and so, the fa- and then the fact that the record's actually really good. Yeah, um, it's, it's mad, really, isn't it? It's 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 amazing. So so that was always, I wanted that record to be huge because it deserved it. I wanted that record because Monty deserved it because the label deserved it. Mm. it, it did, become huge. I mean, again, that to me was like that should have been a gold record because of uh, of what's right <laughs> you know legacy leg- that should have been a legacy plaque <laughs> um and then the show um that show was amazing i mean that was my life on stage uh i watched everyone get plastered mm-hmm. i didn't touch a drop to drink until after the show because i wanted to remember it all um it was just, I mean, that was just to give you an idea of the legacy so rotary united is sold just shy of a hundred thousand in the U.S. as 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 of a few weeks ago. Yeah, 
Not enough. Not enough. Should, it should be five times as much. <laughs> it should be, but it's still, you know, those numbers aren't to, aren't to be snuffed down. I mean, there's still plenty of, even there's plenty of records 15 years, that came out 15 years ago, which haven't sold anything like that. But um, it was always interesting to see that it was being, as a consumer, as someone who was like, well, you know, I'm just some fucking snot-nosed kid. It was interesting to see that the legacy was being taken seriously. Maybe that's what turned me onto the brand because, and then maybe then I understood it was something special because it was it warranted such behavior. But yeah, it, it one thing that does sort of not irk me in any way, but surprises me that, that there's, I haven't seen any discussion about it was I would have expected Max to be one of the captains. You know, um. Maybe even Pete. I wonder. I, I, again, it's a question for Monty to sort of go. How was yeah. it selected? But because at the end of the day, it's an incredibly diverse range of songwriters and um, styles. Maybe that was the game plan. But I, I think you know it's interesting. You know, um, and right, that's that's a Monty question. Uh, I could only speculate. Joey is easy to understand. Joey mm-hmm. is is a no brainer. Um, Rob is also is pretty easy to understand. Um, the all are when you think about it. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. It, and Matt, he wanted someone new. You know, he wanted, mm-hmm. and he and his he knew that Matt was uh, hungry. Not just hungry. Yeah, yes, hungry. But he also he was like, I mean, he was talented be, oh, more than his years. Like in mm-hmm. other words, is he knew he had it in him. Yeah. Um, and right and dino i mean look you're talking about dino Cazares. it's like i mean yeah so each of them makes sense and so you go well i mean he could have had like five captains or six captains well it's like you could listen you could allow this thing to snowball mm-hmm. um you know and and i guess look he made he made those choices and i certainly i mean like i said the record actually turned out beyond expectation or beyond whatever it is uh, beyond the odds uh yeah i mean i i do i do spin up shit and say why not max why not p but then you sort of think there's no right answer but there's no wrong answer you but i I, the answer is probably you've got to work within limitations otherwise it could spiral out of control and that's the thing right was there anyone who never backed it anyone who thought this is a shit idea all the way until uh, to no, conception. I, I don't think so. I, and I, I don't think that. Again, this is speculation. I don't think the Nickelback guys were included because it's it's it, that's off brand. Um, oh again, yeah, that's a point. Not, yeah, not an insult. Not an insult. Um, and I think the thing with Peter, again, if I'm to sit here and think about it. I wonder if like it's like because Peter, as brilliant as he is, and quite obviously, you know, we know me. um, But I wonder if his songwriting would have been a little like I don't like his songwriting is so distinctly him and those Mm. guys. Like I wonder if it would have gelled as well. Like I think typo needs to be typo. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, you couldn't cross pollinate it with other band members. It has to. It would all sound like a similar kind of thing. That's interesting. Yeah, I never thought. Kenny of that and way. Johnny can are 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 
can absolutely they can jam with anybody, which is great, or mm. you know, or with many people, you know, like so that's great. But when you start talking about you know the the, the Peter Josh thing, um, and yes, both of them obviously were a part of the project in on different songs, um, yeah. you know, but it's like it's yeah, I, I think that so I, I think it makes sense that Peter would be a part of it, but not a captain. Yeah, yeah. I've got like 10 minutes before I need to shoot off. Um, oh, good. <laughs> how did, how, tell me about the last, the twilight years and how the relationship with Roderick ended. For me? Uh, For yourself. Yeah. Like, because we know Warner buys their majority stake in 2006, but they don't, they don't start clawing at the door until about 2009, 2010, right? You know, it was interesting. The, um, uh, it was great for a while um and i watched several waves of layoffs mm. um i got to a point where in my own head i was going to be there when they shut the lights out um i was going to be there to the end i mean it was just i was i was roadrunner um people would say that stuff and i would believe it and and i was always it was Again and again and every time that they would let people go, I would be the one sitting there going, "Oh man, I'm so sorry to see you go," but I would still be there. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the end, you know, the people that were overseeing it over at Warner Music Group Atlantic, they're not metal people. Now, obviously, they're still doing cool stuff over there, which I'm mm -hmm. happy about. Um, I wasn't their guy. I, they looked at me as a holdover from that other thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I wasn't part of the 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 clique that were running it. Mm -hmm. um, they were pop guys doing pop stuff, and I was this long-haired freak in the corner, and. They just let me do my thing because I was obviously good at it. Mm -hmm. uh, at some point, you know, that when the, when the layoffs were going to come again, you know, look, they look at the ledger sheet and 21 years of love and respect. Uh, I, and I had been treated very well by the label um, mm -hmm. with all that implies. Um, and so now you get to a point where you start looking down and you're looking at numbers and so now you got um well they could there's a guy who worked underneath me in the new yorker he was our regional um who was much more their guy mm -hmm. um and so they could put him in my job for a lot for less money because again why wouldn't you it's it's and that's not an insult on anybody it's like mm. i i was the vp he was the regional of course i was making more money than him um and i didn't see it coming <laughs> and that's silly on my part okay uh, even the day it happened when they called me down to hr i still was walking down the hall going, i wonder what this is about Ah, so I sat down in there and I just, it, so the fact that it took me as a shock is really silly. Um, <laughs> it, it's, but 
Oh, look, I was mad for about a year. Um, yeah, yeah. I still cheer them on, you know, sure. at the time. And there was, and I was fueled because everyone in the business was shocked, amazed. Mm. Like, how do you get rid of the guy who is the company? Um, well, look, the company obviously goes on. Uh, you know, everyone likes to think uh, this company can't exist without me. I'm, you know, irreplaceable. Well, I didn't think I was irreplaceable, but I yeah. did think that it was obviously a statement that they were going to move on from working heavy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I figured, well, that's it. That's the end of Roadrunner uh, as a brand, as a, as a hard rock label. Yeah. Well, I'm happy that I was wrong. Obviously, I mean, look at what they're doing. Whether it be a, uh, a code orange or uh, uh, well, hell, they're still trying to do the big stuff. You know, whether it be corn and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they're still trying to do. I mean, Gojira obviously are about to become the next breakout band out of the metal scene. Um, you know, it's like, thank you, Roadrunner. They're they're back in Gojira. Hello, that's great. Um, so I'm happy to be wrong. Yeah, about a year I was really bitter. Mm. And I probably probably did some shit talking. <laughs> um, but then I got over it. And The story always ends this way, which is they're still doing cool shit and it, it fundamentally isn't the way it was. But same as everything. Everything. The city you grew up in, the fucking toys you used to play with, the TV shows you used to watch, nothing's ever the same. So it's... It just you just lump it with that stuff. It can't stay the same. Correct. Um, everyone needs to evolve. Uh, I would mm-hmm. say, and this is—I know you got to get going, um, but you it's know it's funny. I, I have always said about bands because um, I think it applies. There's only two bands in history that, in my opinion, were allowed to not evolve. ACDC and Motorhead. Everyone else has to evolve. <laughs> Otherwise, it gets boring. Um, that's, I think, a good, a good analogy. You know, it's like everything has to evolve. Otherwise, it stagnates. Unless you are the rare anomaly of the greatest rock band to <laughs> ever exist in ACDC or the very band that God inhabits. <laughs> yep. Yep. And I, yeah, I'll, I'll close it off there, but thanks very much for uh, joining me again. I'm can't, I can't let it rest. We should probably do, I'm thinking we should do another one, but maybe like get a third person involved and like do that and talk about that.